Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Coming up on today's show, inflation, inflation, inflation. We keep talking about it. Are we going to do anything about it? National security is just something we seem to struggle with in Canada, and there's good reason for that. We've never really had a plan on how to tackle it. We'll see if we can come up with one. And the International Energy Agency has released their report on Canada's energy policies. We'll break it down. So we're going to chat with William Robson, who is the Chief Executive Officer at the C.D. Howe Institute. Uh, William, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure to be here, and we'll see if we can shed any light on this terrible topic. <laughs> it's one that's, you know, people start paying attention any time that, you know, they notice that, wait, things are costing a whole lot more than they did last month or last year, and I'm not getting paid a whole lot more. That's when people start to sort of perk up a little bit and pay attention, right? Well, yeah, people notice some prices a lot. I mean, anything that you're doing on a regular basis, if you're uh, at the grocery store or, or the gas station, uh, and then and then anybody who's been unfortunate enough to have to replace a refrigerator over the last little while might have noticed uh, how much the pr- price of uh, appliances has gone up. Um, but when inflation takes hold, uh, it really is kind of a pervasive problem for people. You're seeing higher prices at the store. Uh, sometimes, you know, you, 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 it's normal for us to want to shop around yep. if you think that the outlet you've gone to is taking is trying to take advantage of you. Um, and when inflation is high, one of the problems that people have is they just you can't tell if 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 you should be shopping around or if prices are just higher everywhere. And it's kind of like having the the pins knocked out from under you. It's a bit like you know, if, if a foot was getting shorter every year or the measuring cup you were using when your cooking was changing over time, um, it's very, it makes life a lot harder if you can't rely on the value of your money staying stable. So, okay, let's, first of all, let's try and define exactly what's going on here because, you know, a lot of people say, well, we're spending so much money, we're spending so much money, but is it, is it, when we talk about Canada's inflation rate, a lot of people will say, yeah, well, it's even worse in the U.S. and it's, it's worse over here. And it's worse. So, I mean, is it a global problem? Is it really something Canada can address on its own? Well, we certainly can address it on our own. The reason that we're seeing uh, inflation higher in a number of other places is because they faced a similar kind of a problem that we did uh, when the pandemic hit. Uh, it was appropriate for central banks to print a whole lot of money because there was a period of time in, in early 2020, especially when uh, people were pretty much paralyzed. I mean, we mm-hmm. didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, there was a lot of demand for cash and central banks provided it. So that was good. Um, what's happened since then, though, is a couple of things. First, uh, we've seen all this uh, uh, fiscal stimulus and a lot of the debt that governments were issuing, central banks were buying, and that kept monetary policy easier than it would have been otherwise. And so now spending is outrunning what the economy can produce. And that's why inflation is now uh, running hot in Canada, as it is in the U.S. and some other places. Um, but I will add, I mean, you, you make an important point. 
um, if, there are places in the world where inflation is very high right yeah, now. Yeah. And then there are, there are places like Venezuela, it's over a thousand percent. There are places in the world, including Japan and Switzerland, where inflation is still well to, below 2%. So people have been dealing with the same problem and making, I would argue, some of the same kinds of mistakes. But if you just look around the world, you can see there's nothing inevitable about it. If we want to get inflation down again, we can. Okay. So if we want to, that's the other thing. Should we? Is this something that, you know, because I have heard some economists and some people out there saying, you know what, this is just the way things are right now and it'll correct and, uh, you know, we've got a pandemic, these are extraordinary circumstances. Is this something that we should try and wrestle, you know, back under control right now? Well, it'll date me to say it, but I do remember the arguments about inflation in the 80s, uh, early 90s, when the Bank of Canada was uh, getting inflation down to what became that that 2% target. And there were a lot of arguments made about inflation not being all that harmful. And certainly the pain of getting inflation down is real enough if you have to undergo a recession. So um, those discussions were very lively. I think what a lot of people, uh, economists uh, including, um, uh, especially among economists, miss is this fundamental problem that people have if they can't rely on the value of their money. Uh, I've, I've heard... Uh, economists, I've heard even central bankers argue that it's not a problem for somebody to divide, you know, like you mentioned 4.7%. So we should be dividing in our heads one point, uh, whatever number we're seeing in a, as a price today by 1.047 to get the equivalent of what it was last year. I mean, come on, people, can, you know, even mathematicians have trouble doing that. It's <laughs> not a reasonable thing to say people can easily cope with. Uh, they can't. That's why you want money to have a stable value. Um, okay, so obviously tackling inflation, we know how that works. That's raising interest rates, right? That's what you're suggesting we should be looking at doing right now? Yes, I think that when you've got uh, inflation up close to 5% and the central banks, uh, the Bank of Canada's uh, policy rate, their overnight rate target is is down at one quarter of a percent. I mean, that's, that's very negative in real terms. If you were to borrow it at a quarter of a percent and just buy... Uh, something that was going to go up at the rate of inflation, it's it's like free money. So that's very, very low. It's unusual for the central bank's rate to be so low uh, relative to inflation. And they really do have to get that overnight rate up closer to at least the rate of inflation. So uh, one of the concerns that I have is that might mean interest rate increases bigger than people are really prepared for. The market's not expecting. A lot of forecasters aren't really calling for the Bank of Canada, uh, the, the interest rate to go up that much. And I think realistically, we have to, you know, maybe inflation is going to cool off more than I expect. Maybe it's going to come down closer to target just on its own. Um, but I my, I wouldn't bet on that. I think that uh, people who have mortgages that they need to renew uh, should be thinking about the possibility that rates go up a little more and, and just be ready for that tightening when it comes. Because whatever economists might say, whatever I might think, um, we know that when inflation gets high, it becomes a political issue because people hate it. And there's going to be yeah. public pressure to get it down again. So um, what what is the implication if we don't? I mean, if we decide to, you know, what's the downside to saying, okay, we're going to, we know what the downside is to trying to rein this in. It, it, it sucks. You know, interest rates go up. We know what the, the impact of that is. What if we don't? What if we decide to just say, okay, you know what, we're going to go along with the people who say it's not a big deal? 
Well, first, I think there's a bit of a dissonance there because the Bank of Canada, I, I think the federal government wasn't that keen on renewing the inflation target. They stuck all these extra words in. Uh, uh, but the bottom line was that the federal government and the Bank of Canada agreed that 2% was the target. So one of the things that you need to do is you need to come clean about that and say, actually, no, we're we're going to um, uh, let inflation run hotter indefinitely. And that's going to be a problem for a lot of people. I mean, if you're retiring and you've got an annuity, you've got savings that you hope are going to see you through uh, 20 or, or, or 30 or you know, maybe longer years, uh, then that makes a huge difference. And, and that's something that I think the Bank of Canada would need to come clean about. Uh, more generally, though, I think that as inflation runs hot for a while, uh, you do just get... Uh, fundamental discontent people yeah. really dislike inflation uh and and so the risk of letting it run hotter for longer is that you just get those uh, expectations built in uh wage increases price setting starts to make the assumption that inflation's going to run hotter for longer and then that means that when you actually do tighten to bring it down it's just that much more painful to do if everybody expects inflation to come back down to two percent then there's no momentum behind it and you you might be able to get it back down and avoid a recession. But once people are expecting that it's going to be running, say, 5 or 6% indefinitely, then for sure you're going to have more of a pinch when you bring it down. Yeah, a bigger correction. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. Uh, William, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder families have a lot going on let ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up like delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids and for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When it comes to national security in this country, it's, it's always been a bit of an issue around you know, how how we handle it, um, why the public doesn't seem to get as wrapped up. I mean, it's a big issue in the United States, as you know, never rises to the same level here. Um, but you know what? As a country, uh, as a government, we've certainly put some obstacles in our own way when it comes to handling it in an efficient manner. So to get some details on exactly what's going on, we're going to chat now with Dr. Stephanie Carvin, who's an assistant professor of international relations, the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. You know, in, in, in reading the piece that you, you worked on and collaborated on, I, I was kind of surprised to find out that historically this country has really struggled to even come up with a way to have national security issues examined and discussed and debated by officials because we haven't really hit, come upon a secure way of doing it, right? Yeah, I know. Canada was an exception for most of the, basically all the 20th century in the sense that we never had security cleared members of a legislature looking at the activities 
of the national security intelligence community. There was an understanding that the minister is responsible for, you know, the RCMP and later CSIS and, and, uh, the communication security establishment. And if there was a problem, you know, the minister should be held to account, but MPs shouldn't actually be able to see the intelligence that is, is, you know, being used to help make decisions. And, you know, this actually made us an exception in most democracies. Every other democracy had some kind of body. So, um, the creation of the National Security Intelligence uh, Committee of Parliamentarians in 2017 was a, a huge step forward in, in terms of, of kind of democratic review of national security in Canada. Okay, so 2017, it looks like we're finally getting our ducks in a row here. But it's not perfect either, right? I mean, there's, there's still some issues that make it still pretty clunky, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is something the Conservatives have, you know, rightly in my view, criticized the, the committee for, which is that it is, and, and this, this is getting super nerdy, so I'm just going to apologize to, to all <laughs> the people good. out in Alberta at this time in the morning. Um, but like, um, uh, I look forward to your tweets later. Um, <laughs> but the, what I'm going to say is like, so it's, it's the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. It's not a parliamentary committee. Right. Now, the, that sounds like I'm just playing with words, but actually that means something different. So the committee itself is a committee that is responsible to the executive of the government. It's not responsible to the House. It's, not a, it's, not, it's a committee that just happens to have MPs on it. It's not a committee from Parliament which is investigating these right. things. Right, so essentially it answers to and is almost created by the Prime Minister in a lot of respects. In a lot of respects, yes. And so some people say, well, this is no longer legitimate because, you know, when the Prime Minister himself or herself is under um, scrutiny, then, you know, the, the Prime Minister can actually redact information. Now, I've always found this to be a little bit of a weak argument in the sense that, you know, the committee members themselves can actually say if there's political interference um, when it occurs. But, you know, that's not um, uh, what, you know, uh, people who champion Parliament, like, uh, you know, the foreign affairs critic Michael Chong, he's a big champion of Parliament, and he says, nope, MPs themselves should be running the committee, should have access to this information. And to be fair, this is how they do things in Britain, right? They have okay. something called the Intelligence Security Committee, and that's, that's how they do it, and that's what I think he's pushing for. That's what I'm wondering. Like, if, I mean, 2017, surely there's other countries that we can look to that have come up with effective models. So we're sort of going um, along the lines of what the UK does. Are we, you know, obviously this isn't working 100%. We know the Conservatives are asking for changes because there is a review process around the framework that we've set up that is due this year, right? Yes, exactly. But uh, whether or not there is actually review uh, you know, a lot of times we will pass bills and say, yes, we will re come and re-examine this five years down the road, and then we don't really do a good job of that. And that's part of the problem, right, is actually we need to look to see how, you know, NSI COP has been working and then think and look to see if there's, there's any changes. And so what we call for in that editorial that we wrote, um, I think it came out Tuesday, but it was published Wednesday, um, the, the, you know, what we're asking is like, you know, we really do need to think about, you know, taking some of these criticisms of our, the current way we review intelligence in Parliament and, and try to find ways to improve it to make it more democratic in the long run. Now, that being said, the challenge is that, um, the, the, you know, so, so while being sympathetic to a lot of these conservative arguments, the, the challenge is that they're trying to force this through 
on urgent issues and do so in a way that I think is not going to to work or be pretty productive for like the absolute yeah. immediate moment that we find ourselves in. Exactly. Uh, so, I mean, as somebody who studies this and takes a look at these issues, and I mean, there are some pretty, I mean, na- national security never seems to get the the do that it deserves in our country how do we go about what would be the effective way of doing this i mean once you hand it over to the mps you've got election cycles that come into it and as you say we've got different governments of the day that are in charge and want different things to happen so how do you get some continuity and some sort of framework that makes this uh, you know uh, something that we can actually tackle appropriately so that's a great question so first of all i do think you know Within the community, there's always been skepticism about politicians, right? Because we see politicians on TV being interviewed, and we all kind of want to roll our eyes and um, turn, change the station, right? Um, yeah. And I think that attitude has existed in the national security community for some time. But that doesn't mean that MPs shouldn't have access to intelligence. Like, we need to preserve this. Yeah. If anything, I think part of the problem is our debates have been really uninformed in Canada for the last couple of decades. And that my hope is that by having MPs investigate understand issues, talk to their colleagues, that actually we're going to have much better understanding of foreign affairs and uh, defense in this country. And so MPs will, you know, right now we're looking at a a good example. There was a big story yesterday that the, um, or Tuesday, sorry, I think that we're going to have this new Indo-Pacific foreign policy that's been costed out at, you know, well over a billion dollars, right? And you're asking the government to spend a billion dollars on things that are going, you know, in a post-pandemic environment when people are looking for the Canadian economy to recover. So, you know, having MPs who understand why we need to do this, why it's important that, you know, we have a robust presence in the Indo-Pacific, I think is hopefully going to lead to a better discussion of how we actually implement this new Indo-Pacific policy uh, going forward. So so that's my hope. I mean, maybe yeah. it's a little naive, but, you know, hope springs eternal. Well, Stephanie, it's a, it's a chicken or an egg thing. I mean, do Canadian, do MPs not put enough focus on national security and foreign affairs issues because the public doesn't demand they do, or does the public not demand that they do because they don't really know what's going on because it's not something that politicians talk about? I mean, how do we make this be... I mean, we're entering an age where the United States are not going to be what they used to be, and I think that was our reliance in a lot of cases. Well, whatever they do, we'll do. Um, That's changing. I mean, how do we make this something that we're actually grown up enough to handle on our own? That's a really, you're right. We need, I, I like that chicken and the egg. Sometimes I think it's just scrambled eggs or broken eggs exactly. or throwing eggs. Sometimes. There's a lot of ways you can take that analogy. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think part of the problem is Canadians themselves. Look, we are so blessed like to live in, in a country that's surrounded by three oceans with a mostly benign yeah. neighbor to ourselves, right? Like we're, we don't, we don't have to feel scared. You know, I've been to, you know, I've been to Finland. I've been to Israel. I've been to like countries like this where like, you know, you're, not, you're in a very different neighborhood, and geography matters. But for Canadians, geography is just, you know, the fact that we I have to fly fly five hours to get to Vancouver. Um, that That's kind of like our biggest issue. So I think that, you know, as threats are evolving, they're becoming less tied to geography. I mean, we're looking at the idea of foreign interference. We're looking at the idea of, of state-owned enterprises coming in and, and, and kind of skewing the economic landscape. We're looking at cyber threats. These are not issues tied to geography, right? They're tied to something very different. And I think Canadians are starting to understand this and wanting the government to do something about it. So I'm hoping that, you know, both the chicken and the egg are becoming a little bit more 
national security yeah. literate. Not not in such a way to just give national security agencies everything they want, but in order to have informed conversations about how we take steps to deal with these things that is also going to you know benefit the country and be democratic in the long run. Yeah, it's uh, it's frustrating at times, Stephanie, but I always enjoy chatting with you about it, and, and we'll continue to do so down the road. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. You bet. That's Dr. Stephanie Carvin. Um, Dr. Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Now we're going to talk about a report that was released uh, this week, yesterday, uh, by the International Energy Agency, sort of reviewing Canada's energy policies uh, with a lot of discussion around Alberta and fossil fuels and uh, how we're going to reach the goals that we've set and how important that it is. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big report, but uh, we'll get into some of the highlights of it with Markham Hislop. Um, Markham is an energy journalist and publisher of Energy News. Uh, he was sitting in on the release of this report yesterday and joins us now to give us a bit of analysis. Markham, thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Good morning, Shay. So this report, uh, like I said, it's uh, it, it's big. It, it covers a lot of different areas. Just give us your general overview. I mean, it talks a lot about 2050, which seems to be what everybody's talking about right now, and sort of how Canada's plans will get us there or won't get us there or where the shortcomings are, right? Uh, exactly. And uh, the International Energy Agency has been uh, asking global governments for years now to uh, toughen up their energy and climate policies uh, so that we can get to net zero by 2050. And uh, the uh, review that was released yesterday was an overview of of all of Canada's uh, energy policies, uh, electricity systems, Mm -hmm. as well as fossil fuels. And the uh, and the federal government's uh, uh, energy and climate policies. Now, uh, Executive Director Fatih Barrel sat in on the press conference, and he was very positive. He uh, uh, he praised uh, Canada's uh, bold climate policies and talked about uh, especially its efforts to decarbonize oil and gas, and that will be of a great interest to to Albertans. And I think the point here that uh, he was getting at was that Canada is one of the few countries, and it may, in fact, of the major, uh, you know, producers, producing nations, it may be the only country at this point that has policies in place designed to lead to a a net zero oil and gas sector by 2050. And his point was that as consumption declines after uh, 2030, uh, there will be probably, depending on the scenario, somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 million barrels a day, or maybe it might be more than that. Uh, and countries like Canada that have decarbonized their hydrocarbon sector, they're the ones who will get that market share. So that, uh, for, for, the, uh, for the oil and gas CEOs uh, listening to your show, that'll be good news. That's the thing. I mean, we should point out, like, he, was, he had a lot to say about the fact that we have... Um, a position here where we can really be leaders in this energy transition. And he went to great lengths to point out that there will be demand for oil and gas for the foreseeable future. And we're uniquely positioned to meet the global demand, as you say, um, in a way that sort of still adheres to all of the goals that we've set. So he certainly wasn't coming down anti-fossil fuels, I guess. He wasn't doing that. Oh, no, no, he wasn't doing that at all. But there is there is a caveat here. 
because this argument often gets made uh, inside Alberta and, and by the uh, by the industry, and that is right now we consume a hundred million barrels of oil per day. Right. If that is reduced to twenty five million or thirty million or forty million, that's still a lot of production chasing a much smaller market. Yeah. And you know, can 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 Alberta be competitive uh, in that scenario? Uh, we don't know. I mean, we just literally don't know. In fact, uh, I asked an economist a couple of years ago uh, if there had, you know, what would happen if uh, the market declined from 100 million barrels a day to 90 to 80 to 70? And he said, we don't know because nobody's ever modeled it. And so uh, one of the recommendations that came uh, out of that uh, uh, report was that Canada, the Canadian government, should do a lot more of the of the kind of economic modeling that's required for pathways to decarbonization. There's some think tanks in Canada that have already put out reports about, uh, uh, you know, modeling the, the effect of these policies. The government needs to do it and needs to have that as part of their strategy. And one of the things I think they should ask is, given, uh, you know, Canada's, uh, given the oil sands, for instance, which makes up 60% of Canada's oil, uh, oil production, uh, could it be competitive at... 25 million barrels a day in that scenario and any number of those scenarios. So uh, we'll, that one is kind of uh, open-ended at yeah. this point. Uh, and with any luck, we'll get the uh, Canadian Energy Regulator. Maybe we'll do some scenario modeling in the next year or two. Um, yeah, as you say, some of that remains to be seen. But some of the talk that was happening yesterday, zero emission electricity and um, really looking to low carbon fuels like hydrogen and biofuels and things like that. Um, how exactly does that fit into what Canada has laid out for the next 30 years? Well, Canada certainly has a hydrogen strategy, as does the Alberta government. Yep. Uh, and hydrogen will play a appears to be poised to play a, a keen role in the in the switch to, uh, you know, away from fossil fuels. Uh, the uh, there are, you know, in terms of the electricity system. Now, that's a very interesting one because one of the the, the rec- four major recommendations that the IA made is that there be more east west trade in electricity and more of these transmission interties between provinces. And especially in Western Canada, there's big opportunity for Alberta because it it has the only true market system in Canada for electricity. And and that's one of the reasons why it's been adding so much uh, wind and solar in the last couple of years. And it looks poised to do that going uh, going ahead. But it's a very unique uh, setup between the the four provinces. You've got uh, uh, B.C., and Manitoba kind of bookending Alberta and Saskatchewan, and they those two provinces have lots of hydro. Uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan have terrific uh, resources for wind and solar, especially uh, you know Cal- uh, Calgary and, and South. And uh, the four of them, if they were tied together with more uh, transmission uh, lines, uh, could basically form a regional market. So the, the uh, hydro dams can act as a big battery for all of that uh, mm-hmm. intermittent wind and solar. So when the sun is shining and the, the wind is blowing, uh, you put all that cheap uh, renewable electricity into the system, and then the hydro dams can uh, cut back and, and uh, don't release as much water, don't produce as much electricity. And then when the sun uh, stops shining and the wind stops blowing, then you can release that water and, and generate more electricity to, uh, to balance out the system. 
That works great. In, it would work great in theory. Unfortunately, the provinces don't talk to each other. It's not like, you know, uh, uh, Jason Kenney's picking up the phone and talking to John Horgan about this issue. And so the, the federal government has crea- is about to create a pan-Canadian grid council uh, that will hopefully uh, kick off uh, conversations about this uh, idea between uh, between the provinces. But it's a uh, the economists that I've interviewed think it's a, a terrific idea. It's the best way to make use of the resources and so that we can scale up uh, for the two or three times of the electricity that we're going to need mm-hmm. uh, you know, by the time we get to 2050. And that's what they were talking about yesterday. Yes, we're gonna need, we know there's going to be a lot more electricity needed, and it has to be clean, cleanly generated electricity, right? So, I mean, you've got those two things going on at the same time, the increasing demand, but you have to be careful in how you go about meeting that demand. That was mentioned yesterday as well. Yeah, and it's no small matter. I mean, no. uh, yeah, all you have to do is, is look uh, south of the border, uh, you know, to the what's going on in the U.S. US uh, electricity system. I mean, utilities down there and then the power grid, I mean, it's being tr- it transformed. In, all, in addition to wind and solar and batteries, there's all kinds of other new transmission distribution uh, technologies. There are innovations in markets so they, uh, uh, so that utilities are becoming uh, almost like a flat business model and they're becoming a platform for uh, many, many, many uh, consumers and, and producers of electricity to trade. It's, it's, a real, it's a new world in the, in the power sector. That hasn't arrived in Alberta, hasn't got to Canada yet, no. but it will over the next two to five years. And we're going to see big changes between now and 2030 in that sector. Um, yeah, I mean, it's all, we, we, we often get, and I'm seeing it on the text line already, Mark, in terms of what's it going to cost? Well, we, it's all going to change over time, and we're, we're looking at a 30-year window here. I, I'm, I'm curious as to what the Natural Resources Minister, who was also uh, uh, part of this announcement, or, or this, you know, a news conference yesterday, Jonathan Wilkinson was there uh, talking about Canada's plans. What, what did he have to say about where we are? And I know he was talking about fossil fuel production as well, and, and uh, putting the cap on emissions and how that fits into this plan. Well, there's a very important distinction here, and, and uh, we talked about emissions cap. Uh, so that's the, there are emissions reductions consultations going on right now with industry and other other stakeholders, led by the federal government. And we'll uh, the environment minister Stephen Gilbo uh, has been tasked with with uh, coming up with the, the legislation and regulations needed to uh, implement uh, the emissions cap. But Gilbo also said something really important here uh, just last week. He said, we are not interested in a production cap. And that the, the uh, Alberta's oil and gas producers right. have always been worried that the way the federal government would deal with uh, emissions is to force them to lower production. And they said they're not going to do that. There'll be, uh, there'll be a, an emissions cap. They'll probably start by focusing on methane emissions. And uh, methane emissions are relatively easy and cheap to clean up. I mean, a lot of it is venting and flaring and broken valves and, you know, open vents at, at uh, gas plants, that sort of thing. I mean, more maintenance and repair and, uh, and so on can fix it. And every, you know, cubic foot of, of gas, of methane that you save is another cubic foot that you get to sell. So, you know, oil and gas companies, they like that. Uh, so they'll start with methane emissions probably uh, and try to get to that 75% reduction by 2030 that the federal government has promised. And then the CO2 reductions through uh, carbon capture and storage can then kick in later in the 2020s when the infrastructure gets built. 
It's a process, right? And I mean, that's the thing. We have to keep an eye on 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, right? We can't get wrapped up in, yeah, but today you can't do this. That seems to be the argument that we fall into, Markham. Well, the plan, I, I right? First, I, I, first, I first started uh, studying this process back in the mid-80s when I was doing my graduate work in, uni- in university. And uh, energy transitions, these kind of changes take uh, uh, usually around a minimum of 50 years, and then they can take as long as 60, 75 years, something like that. And we're now 20 or 30 years into this uh, right. transition. And by my guess, it started in the 1980s with lithium-ion batteries and commercial solar panels, that sort of thing. So if we're only 30 years in, we we probably have, uh, you know, another, uh, you know, maybe 50 years ahead of us before this transition is, is uh, fully complete. We have... And even if we uh, our deadline is 2050 because we want to hit net zero by then, uh, it's still very doable. But it's 30 years. Right. Things are not going to happen tomorrow. And we and the technology. And this is a key point that I think is missed often in Alberta, is the clean energy technology has come a long way in a decade. It has a long way to go. There is so much technology uh, innovation going on globally in things like batteries and electric vehicles and transmission technology and software and artificial intelligence. All of that will play a role as we transition into this, you know, basically an electric economy. And, uh, yeah, if it doesn't work today, that doesn't mean it's not going to work next year or five years from now. Exactly, exactly. Markham, good stuff. Thanks so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Shane. Appreciate it. That's Markham Hislop. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.